Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the book of 1 Peter. And this morning, we are going to be looking at one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament, a passage that I've always wanted to preach, and it's hard to believe that this is the first time I'll ever do it. It's a passage that I'm sure is familiar to most of you, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, let me read it and we'll pray. And we'll get into it here. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. God, we come before you and we want to say thank you again for your precious word. We know it's the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. And so we come to it once again and we ask that your spirit would illuminate us, help us understand these two verses and to instruct us as to what you would have us to know and to help us be who you would have us to be. And we thank you for the spirit that not only illuminates us, but enables us to apply this text to our lives and empowers us to live it out. And we desperately need to live this one out. This is a big one. And so, Lord, would you grant us grace now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday morning, I went to my first workout at the new F45 in town, and that is just my ongoing effort to fight the fat man that lives inside of me that wants to keep coming out. And one of the trainers welcomed me very graciously and happily and asked me my name. And when I told him, he said, oh, you're the pastor. And I thought to myself, game on. Instant accountability. And so it just reminded me that I've got my work cut out for me, not just exercising, but exemplifying Christ. Working out is hard, but the greater challenge is witnessing to those that you work out with. Amen? Those of you that hit the gym on a regular basis, that's the big challenge. And... I have to say, I'm not, it's not like I'm not used to that. In fact, what happened yesterday at the gym reminded me of when we moved into our subdivision years ago. Some of you may remember me sharing this story. I can't remember when the last time was that I did, but when you live in a small community, word travels fast, and it didn't take long for us to figure out that the buzz around the neighborhood was that the pastor just moved in. And as I had the opportunity to meet our new neighbors, they all were very quick to share with me their religious credentials when they got baptized, their denominational background, what church they attended or why they didn't go to church. And they also were surprisingly open about where everyone else in the neighborhood stood in relationship to God and church. (laughs) Several felt that I ought to know that the couple who lived across the street from us owned a topless bar. Maybe they thought that would take my focus off them, since 
The folks next door were obviously bigger sinners than they were. Well, I eventually met those notorious neighbors, and I will never forget our initial conversation. The wife bluntly began the conversation by saying, so I hear you're a pastor. And wanting to break the obvious tension, I jokingly said, well, I try to act like it. That usually goes over okay. He gets a laugh and kind of puts everybody at ease. Well, she immediately responded by rolling her eyes and with an exasperated tone of voice, she said, oh, don't even start with me. <laughs> and I thought, oops, that was the wrong thing to say. And she proceeded to tell me about her first husband and how they were actively involved in church and how he had devoted a lot of his free time to helping some of the women in the church maintain their yards and do home repairs and until she discovered he was doing more than just helping them around the house. And when she confronted him about his unfaithfulness, he didn't repent, and so he, she went to her pastor, who was a good friend of her husband, and asked him to confront him, but he never followed through with it. Well, she ended up leaving her husband and eventually leaving the church when she found out the reason why the pastor never confronted her husband, because he was doing the same thing. So it didn't just surprise me when she told me that she, she didn't, had never been back to church since. Well, after ex explaining her bad experience with church, she quickly added that she knew that we had probably already been told that they owned a topless bar. And she wanted to assure me that she was a Christian and that 95%, I quote, 95% of the girls that worked there were Christians too. I was speechless. I, I really did not have an answer for that. And I just was thinking, well, it's nice to meet you too. Got to go. I didn't say that. We wrapped up the conversation. I don't remember how. But when the conversation ended and I walked back across the street to our house, I do remember this. Praying very purposefully that by God's grace to live my life in a way that would somehow repair the damage done by the hypocrisy of her former husband and pastor and show her that all pastors aren't like that. I wanted her to see that there are pastors who practice what they preach and there are churches where people practice what is preached. In other words, their lives match up with what they say that they believe. And because they don't just say they're Christians but they actually act like Christians, they attract the attention of those who have written off the church as being filled with a bunch of hypocrites and concluded they don't need Jesus in their life. My goal is to live my life in such a way and to lead a church full of people who live their lives in such a way as to make Christianity look beautiful and attractive and desirable to a cynical world that is too often disillusioned by the inconsistent behavior of those who call themselves Christians. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I don't go to church because there's so many hypocrites there? Rarely will you hear someone say they don't go to church because they don't agree with what the church teaches. What keeps them away is not our beliefs, it's our behaviors. They typically don't know what we believe, but they do see how we behave. 
And if going to church doesn't make us behave any different than they do, then why should they come to church? And if saying we believe in Jesus hasn't changed our lives for the better and made us better men and women and better husbands and wives and better parents and better children and better neighbors and better employers and employees and better students, and if our marriages are no better than their marriages or our kids are no better than their kids or uh, our responses to life's problems and pressures are no better than their responses, then why should they be interested in anything we say to them about Jesus? Why would any unbeliever want to become a believer if the lives of those who claim to believe in him are no different from theirs? Who would be drawn to Jesus Christ if he doesn't have the power to change someone's life? You see, those of us who truly know Christ as our Lord and Savior will live differently. Why? Because by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we have been born again and we have become a completely new creature in Christ. And this internal spiritual change inevitably results in an external behavioral change in which slowly but surely our lives begin to line up more and more with the teaching of God's word. And this spirit-induced, Bible-based transformation in the life of every true believer is what should catch the attention of unbelievers and pique their interest about what it means to be a Christian. And of all the strategies that have been developed and are being used by the church today to win people to Christ, I think the best one is simply living a holy life. You could call it lifestyle evangelism. That when our lives are distinctively different from the rest of the world, it should not surprise us when unbelievers who watch our lives over a period of time become convicted of their sin and convinced of the transforming power of the gospel and they commit their lives to follow and obey Christ as well. That's the evangelistic strategy that Peter advocated in this text. And not just in this text, by the way, this entire letter. And so what I want us to see this morning as we look at verses 11 and 12 is the two urgent calls given by Peter here that we all must heed if we want to have a powerful and effective testimony that God can use to bring others to Christ. In verse 11, we see a call to war. And in verse 12, we see a call to woo. I know that sounds funny at first, but don't write it off yet. I think it'll make sense as we go through it. But we're, first of all, challenged to repel, verse 11, and then we're challenged in verse 12 to attract. In other words, while we're warring against the enticements and the the allurements of the world, we are to simultaneously be wooing the world to Christ. That's what's going on in these two verses. So let's look first of all at the call to war, that we are to repel something. Notice how it begins. He says, beloved, literally literally agape toy, which we know that 
is from the word agape, which is the love of God for us. And Peter was not only expressing his deep affection for his readers by calling them beloved, but I think more importantly, he was reminding them how much God loved them. And Peter used this term eight times in these two epistles here in chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, Look at chapter 4, verse 12. He says it again, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father for such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He was recounting the transfiguration experience that he and the uh, Peter and James, or excuse me, Peter, James, and John experienced there when Jesus revealed his glory on the mountain. He goes on to use the word beloved a number of other times there in 2 Peter. But all that to say, Peter referred to Christians the same way that he had heard God refer to Jesus. This is my beloved son. I love how Paul talks about the love of God for us. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In other words, in Christ or through Christ. So you can't separate the fact that Christ is God's beloved son and that we are God's beloved children. In fact, one commentator said it this way, beloved is the honored title that accompanies everyone whose spiritual identity and eternal destination are wrapped up in Christ. That's talking about you. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are beloved. What a great encouragement. And we should reciprocate that love that God has shown to us by living for him. I I recently wrote something down that I was, when I was reading, I don't remember what I was reading, but a thought captured my mind and I wrote it down a little post-it on my desk. It's now up on my wall there by my desk. And it was simply this. Do I live my life thinking, if I obey God, he will love me, or do I live my life thinking, because God loves me, I will obey him? That makes all the difference in the world. How about you? Are you living your life thinking, well, if I obey God, then he'll love me? And I didn't really do a good job obeying him this last week, so I'm not sure how much he loves me this morning. Or are you like, you know what, because God loves me so much, I just want to obey him. I'm one of his beloved. I want to live like it. I want to act like it. I want to show him how grateful I am for loving me so much. So Peter reminds them how loved they are, not just by him, but ultimately by God. And then notice he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers. There's an urgency here in Peter's tone. He's saying, I encourage you, I exhort you, I 
entreat you, I implore you, I appeal to you, I beg you. As aliens and strangers, and he returned to the description that he had already used two times in the opening chapter. If you remember, he began the letter in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then in verse 17, he says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So he wanted his readers and us to remember that this world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven who are living here on this earth like temporary residents in a foreign country. You may be familiar with the term expatriate, which is someone who resides in a country that's not their native country. It's a term that refers to professionals or skilled workers or even missionaries who take positions outside their homeland, usually having been sent abroad by their employees or, or employers, or excuse me, or their, maybe their churches or their mission agencies. Some of you knows, know, knows what it feels. You know what it feels to, to be an expat since you worked in a foreign country as part of your career, or you, like the stars, were missionaries, right? You were expats there in, in uh, Albania. Some of you sitting here this morning are expats. Because the United States is not the country of your origin. But we need to understand, spiritually speaking, every one of us who claims the name of Christ and have, been commi and have committed our lives to follow him are spiritual expats. We've been sent abroad by God, as it were, to serve us as ambassadors here on this earth. And once our assignment is done, he'll take us to our heavenly home. We should be like... Abraham, who knew he was a pilgrim and a sojourner who was just passing through to a better place. In fact, just turn to the left a couple pages and you'll find Hebrews chapter 11. And listen to how the author of Hebrews describes Abraham's faith. This is Hebrews 11 verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeying by going out to a place obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then jump down to verse 13. All these died in faith, including not just Abraham, but the others he's mentioned here, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so that should be our mentality as aliens and strangers who live in this earth. We should be like Abraham, not Lot. Lot's not mentioned in the Hall of Faith. And I think it's because he, he didn't live as a sojourner. He didn't live as an alien. He settled down in Sodom. 
In fact, he blended in with the people of Sodom. It's interesting. You go back to Genesis 13, and you can see this progression that, that when Abraham and Lot parted ways, it said that Lot pitched his tents towards Sodom. In other words, he kind of was looking at Sodom, had a view of Sodom. Well, the next time Lot shows up in the text, he's living in Sodom. And so he had succumbed to the gravitational pull, if you will, of that, of that urban center. And I think too many Christians are like Lot. They, they settle down in the world and they become like the world. And they forget that Jesus said that his followers were to be in the world, but not what? Of the world, John 17, 16. In other words, Jesus never expected us to, to cloister ourselves away in some Christian commune or convent or uh, some mountain monastery. And sadly, some equate Christianity with that kind of sequestered lifestyle. But that's not what God ever intended for his people. He wanted us to be embedded in our neighborhoods and our communities and in our workplaces and in our schools so that we could rub shoulders with unbelievers and share with them the good news of the gospel. And of course, with that comes a challenge because he wants us to stay detached. He wants us to be involved in the world, but stay detached from the world and never become conformed to the world. In other words, we shouldn't adopt the customs or the values or the lifestyles of of those around us. We shouldn't think and talk and act like everyone else in the world. So again, the challenge for us as Christians is staying separated from the world while not becoming isolated from the world. We need to influence the world without being influenced by the world. Well, Peter goes on here, I think, to give one of the keys to being in this world but not of this world. And so here is the command, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, what is he begging them to do? To abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. That word abstain means literally to hold yourself constantly back from something, to to restrain yourself, to to refrain from doing something or partaking in something. Peter already exhorted us not to give in to our former lust, chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lust, which are yours in your ignorance. He goes on to define those later. Um... In chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And if you're familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul, you know that before we were saved, we had no choice but to give in to our sinful impulses, the lust of our flesh. Ephesians 2, verse 3, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
And Paul provided a, a, a lengthy list of these fleshly lusts. If you're curious, what was Peter thinking about or referring to when he talked about abstaining from fleshly lust? You can just turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul writes, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets a desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now here he goes. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Thankfully, we also know that Paul said in Romans chapter 6 that when we come to Christ, we are delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. In other words, we will never be punished for our sin, and we no longer have to give in to the pull of sin. Amen? But we still have to be, or we still have to deal with the presence of sin. We've not been freed or delivered from the presence of sin. Our new nature that we were given in Christ remains encased in a sin-cursed body that, that craves satisfaction. And that's why we're tempted to overindulge when it comes to uh, fleshly things, like things regarding our bodies, whether it's eating or drinking or sleeping or working or having sex or amassing material possessions. The Apostle John mentions these in a simple summary fashion in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here he goes, he's going he's gonna to summarize everything that's out there that appeals to us in the world. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The, the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So as long as we are in this world, we will be tempted to satisfy our lusts in ways that are contrary to God's will. Not until we get to heaven and we are transformed into the image of Christ will we, we be delivered finally, ultimately, from the presence of sin. But until then, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, walking through Vanity Fair, you remember that scene? We must resist the enticing and the alluring calls of sin and exercise self-control over our fleshly desires by putting on Christ, Romans 13, 14, and putting those fleshly desires to death with the help of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 13. But... Notice, according to Peter, we aren't just pilgrims walking through a foreign land. We are soldiers walking through a minefield while the enemy is launching missiles at us the entire time. 
Notice what he says. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So he likened our our sinful desires to an army of soldiers engaged in constant warfare against us. It's as if all of our enemies, the, the world and the flesh and the devil, they've combined forces and they're carrying out this sustained military campaign against us and their sole mission is to dominate us and to destroy our lives and they will stop at nothing to capture us and to, to cripple us and to make us useless to God. John Bunyan wrote a lesser known allegory of the Christian life called the Holy War in which he depicted the spiritual war waged by Diabolos, the, the, the evil king, Satan, against the town of Mansoul. And that story, the Holy War, really does a fascinating job of of revealing how Satan and his minions hate us and are actively hostile towards us and they relentlessly attack us at our weakest point seeking to damage our souls. These things that we're giving into so often, whatever it is for you, it's not just perhaps damaging your body, it's damaging your soul. It's damaging your relationship with the Lord. Chuck Swindoll said this, he said, for unbelievers, earth is a playground where the flesh is free to romp and run wild, but for believers, earth is a battleground. It's the place where we combat the lust that wage war against our souls. But the good news is, when we experience victory in the war against our fleshly lusts, and we successfully repel the world by the grace of God and with the help of His Spirit, it is visible or noticeable in our behavior, which should then, what? Attract the world. When we repel the world, it actually in turn attracts the world. And so we need to realize here that Christianity is more than just what we don't do. Hey, quit it, stop it, don't do that anymore. It's also what we do. And so we have a call to war We're to repel, but then there's a second call here, and that is a call to woo. We are to attract. Notice verse 12. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That word behavior there is the word anastrophe, which means conduct or behavior or lifestyle. We've already seen it once in chapter 1, verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your anastrophe, in your behavior. It shows up again in chapter 3. Really a great illustration. If you're wondering what does it mean to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, 
that perhaps people will see your good deeds and observe them and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, they'll get saved. The winsome wife is exhibit A. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the, what? Behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Can't wait to get there. That'll be a great passage to talk about. What does that look like for those of you Ladies who, in the providence of God, are connected to ungodly men. Perhaps an unbelieving husband. That's a high calling. But God knew there was going to be some women in that situation, and so he put something in his word for you. And we'll get there in a few weeks, so hang in there. But then notice verse 15 of chapter 3, a key text in this letter, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good, what? Behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So you see the, the, the pattern here? It's a theme. In this letter, this is Peter's favorite evangelistic strategy. And again, I said this earlier, but there are all sorts of strategies and and techniques that have been developed to, to win people to Christ. And sadly, some of them have overshadowed the the simplest, most effective method of evangelism, and that's just just lifestyle evangelism. Just 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 live your life in front of people. And share the gospel. And as you've heard it said, maybe, and use words if necessary. Now, that's not an excuse to say, well, you know, I'm kind of shy or scared and I don't want to actually share the gospel. I'll just show them the gospel. No, they're, they need to hear the gospel at some point. But maybe the best way to introduce them to the gospel is not by saying anything about the gospel, but just living the gospel. And it might soften their hearts and might even intrigue them enough that they might ask you, hey, what's up with you? Like my friend in high school, Darlene Pizzi, I'll never forget this, standing in the crowded hallway in between classes and it was just chaos. You know, if you went to a public high school, you know when the bell rings, it's just like chaos and everybody's flooding out of the classrooms and coming up to their lockers and hear lockers opening and lockers slamming and and it's just like loud and obnoxious and and so I just remember kind of getting, going to my locker and doing my thing and Darlene Pizzi was right next to me and, and, and I was just, you know, minding my own business and I was getting my, putting my books in for my last class, getting my books out for the next class and, and, and it was like she, she just stopped and she looked over at me and she said, Ken, why are you always so happy? And it was like everything in that hallway stopped for a second and got really quiet. Not really, literally, but it's just like time stopped. And we had a little moment in between our lockers. And that was her way of saying, there's something about you. There's something different. 
and I want to know what it is. And so I said, hey, listen, let's go to class. We had our next class together. I said, let's go to class, and I'll tell you. And so we went down, sat down on the desk next to each other, and I just began to talk to her about Jesus and how Jesus had changed my life because that wasn't always the case of who I was, and so it was a joy to share Christ with her. What's that called? That's just lifestyle evangelism. And notice how effective it is. It, it doesn't just necessarily appeal to the people who like you, your family members, your friends. It, it even appeals to your enemies. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. So he's talking about the, the Gentiles, by the way, is just, just pagans. Just, just live, keep your behavior excellent among the, the pagans around you, the unbelievers around you. So in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. Again, we just read this in chapter 3, verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, so that's just, that comes with the territory. Chapter 4, verse 4, in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you, they make fun of you, they laugh at you because you don't go to the strip club with them after work and you don't go to the bar and you don't go to here and you don't do that. What's your problem, man? You're a prude, you're this, you're that. And so it's not uncommon for our good to be spoken of as what? As evil. And that's exactly what was going on to the Christians in Peter's day. They were under intense scrutiny and they were being falsely accused of all sorts of things like immorality because they loved each other so much and they were so affectionate with one another. They were giving one another holy kisses and, right, according to the commands of Scripture. And so the, the world just said, yeah, they're just a bunch of, you know, immoral people. In fact, they were even accused of incest. They were falsely accused of cannibalism because of how they participated in the Lord's Supper. Right? And, and Jesus said, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right, you can have no part of me. And so they took that literally and go, oh, that's gross. These people are a bunch of cannibals. They were accused of, of treason, not submitting to the Caesar, not, not going along with the, the government. They were, they were accused of sedition and, and being anti-slavery and, and, and uh, treating slaves nice. Right? As when they got saved and then their slave got saved and all of a sudden they're brothers in Christ. And, and so they have a whole different way of relating to one another. And so they were accused of being anti-slavery. And just in general, in those days, Christianity was viewed as a, quote, mischievous superstition. And along with that, because of that, and along with all these other vicious rumors and accusations that were being made against Christians, it was easy when Nero wanted to develop Rome and there was no place to, to go, he wanted to get rid of some stuff and so he started a fire 
to burn it down so he could rebuild it. And guess who he blamed? The Christians. They were an easy target. And that's why he was able to inflict all sorts of torturous punishment on them. Well, like the Christians in the first century, it is inevitable that a godless world in which we live will speak evil of our good and falsely accuse us and distort the facts and start and share rumors about us and try to turn people against us. I'm sure most of you experienced something like that at some point in your life, right? But we need to follow Peter's advice and not try to defend ourselves, but simply prove our detractors wrong by the way we live our lives. It's interesting, when the ancient Greek philosopher Plato was told that a certain man was, had been making slanderous charges against him, his response was this, quote, I will live in such a way that no one will believe what he says. I will live in such a way that no one will believe what this guy says. Swindoll adds here, the most convincing defense is the silent integrity of our character, not how vociferously or loudly or forcibly, forcefully we deny the charges. In fact, we're going to see this later in this chapter. We're to follow the example of Jesus in verse 21, for we've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an, exa- leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He never did anything wrong, and yet he was reviled. And yet while he was reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Back to verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, here it is, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's paraphrasing here what Jesus had taught him and the other disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew 5, verse 16? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your what? Your good works and do what? And glorify your Father who's in heaven. So Peter's saying essentially the same thing. He's just repeating the words of Christ here, that they may, because of your good deeds... That word good literally means beautiful or attractive. And this is a good reminder that good deeds or good works should, should characterize the life of every Christian. The scripture couldn't be clearer about this. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Titus 2.7, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify from several people for his own possession, jealous for good deeds. So we go from doing evil deeds to doing good deeds. And then Titus 3.8, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want, to speak confident, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds.
You know, over the years, we've rented billboards along 105 from time to time to advertise our church. Then every once in a while, I think about maybe we should rent another one. But then I'm reminded of this verse that the best advertisement for our church is not a billboard, but it's you. It's me. And we mentioned that last week, right, when we talked about that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that that word means to advertise, and that we're like a walking commercial or a walking billboard, an advertisement for God and uh, for, for, for the gospel. And as I was driving home from church last Sunday, I pulled up to Walden Road and Guess what drove by? One of those new billboard trucks. You seen those? I mean, that's a cool idea, right? Instead of having a stationary billboard that just sits there and just the only people that see it are the people that drive by that road every day. It's like, hey, put it on the back of a flatbed truck and just drive around everywhere. And I thought, that's us right there. We're just not sitting there, stationary billboard. We are that truck, right? We drive around. We go through life, and we go home, and then we go to work, and then we go to the gym, and then we go to school, and then we go to Walmart, and then we go over to Kroger, and then we go to the movie theaters. We're, everywhere we're going, we're just driving that little billboard around. And while there may be a time and place for a direct marketing plan, some mass mailing, some social media blitz, let's not forget that the most effective way to get the word out about our church and this community is by doing good deeds, doing kind, thoughtful, generous, sacrificial deeds for others. Why? Because whether we realize it or not, we are always being what? Watched. especially by those who know we're Christians. Notice it says that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them. Unbelievers are constantly and carefully listening to what we say and watching what we do and seeing how we react to things and cope with things and maybe even hoping that we're going to blow it so that they can mock our commitment to Christ and feel justified in not committing their life to Christ. But what Peter's saying here is that as they observe our, our words and our actions and our attitudes over a long period of time, that, this is in the present tense, and so it, it, this is not just a, oh, a quick glance. Oh, I saw that, and yeah, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to change. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to put my faith in Christ. No, this is, this is, this is uh, witnessing over the long haul. And so as they observe our words and our actions and attitudes over a long period of time, they take mental notes and they review them and they remember them and they draw conclusions about whether or not Christianity is true and real and worth their time and their effort and their attention. And it may take years for someone to finally come to Christ after seeing the beauty 
of Christ displayed through the lifestyle of someone who faithfully follows him. Some of you have been faithfully following Christ for years. And maybe you're discouraged that your family member, your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, who you've witnessed to so many times you've lost track and well don't be discouraged hang in there keep up the good work continue to display the beauty of Christ through your lifestyle and perhaps someday the Lord will use that to lead them to Christ I think that's what Peter was thinking about when he said that they may, because of your good deeds, these slanderers of yours, these critics of yours, these enemies of yours, they may be, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now again, we come to a phrase where commentators disagree. Of the 22 plus commentaries I'm working through and using, uh, not all of them agree on what Peter meant by the day of visitation or the day when God visits them. This phrase, the day of visitation, is used all over the Bible to either refer to when God comes to judge or when God comes to save. One example would be Luke chapter 19, Luke, Luke, Luke 19, um, verse 44, where it talks about how Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem and was about to enter on the, the, the full, right, and uh, they were going to shout out hallelujah, it says he, he saw the city and wept over it. That's, that's the part that usually is not shown in the flannel graph to the children in Sunday school class, right? It's just like, oh, look at Jesus and all the palm things, and, you know, everybody's laying down their, their coats, and he's coming through, and it's that day of, well, guess what? There was a tear coming down Jesus' cheek when that was all going down. Because while it appeared to everyone observing that moment, wow, look at, they're all accepting Jesus as the Messiah. It said he was sad, they, he wept because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. That Christ had come to save them. And they missed that opportunity. And so he had to, what? Judge them. So I think the context here in 1 Peter chapter 2, again, context is king, right? They say. So I think the context here seems to favor the latter interpretation, this that God coming to save rather than coming in judgment. In other words, what Peter was saying is that God will use our good deeds to convict and convert our unbelieving critics. God will graciously and mercifully visit them by granting them repentance and faith, and they will honor God and give him thanks, like it says in Romans chapter 1. And particularly, they'll give thanks for the testimony of that faithful believer, which God used to lead them to Christ, even though they had slandered them mercilessly, or persecuted them, or maybe even killed them. For example, the centurion, 
who stood at the foot of the cross. Who Mark records in Mark 15, 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I think that centurion is in heaven. How did he get saved? By observing Christ on the cross. Observing his words and his actions and his attitudes while he was being crucified. And it convinced him that he was who he said he was. Another example I think about is Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 58, he was bringing it. He was preaching the gospel to those fellow Jews who had crucified Christ and they didn't like it. They didn't want to hear it. In fact, listen to how they, look at how they respond, verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. They, they, they literally stuck their fingers in their ears. We don't want to hear this. And they rushed at him with one impulse, and when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Saul had a front row seat to the stoning of Stephen. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Interesting. Forget the chapter break. Next verse. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul was like, yeah, kill this guy. He's a heretic. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. It's almost like this stirred up Stephen's stoning, just stirred him up so much, he just went on the war path entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. I think that got into his head. He couldn't get that image out of his mind of that devout saint being stoned to death for the cause of Christ. And he, and he was convicted. And so sometimes when an unbeliever gets convicted, things get worse before they get better. Because they try to shake off that conviction and go back to what they were doing and even go deeper into the sin that they were in just to try to get that, the, the echo or the, uh, of the words or the, 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 the images that they remember of that godly person and out of their heads, but it doesn't work. And so you get to Acts chapter 9. Now Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And you know the rest of the story. Gets knocked off his horse, right? Goes blind. And ultimately gets saved. I have to believe that Stephen's testimony was a part of that process of Saul becoming Paul. Why? Because God can use our testimony to cause even the most hardened, calloused unbeliever to come to Christ, which ultimately glorifies God. And, and again, they are not wooed by the eloquence of our words, but by the radiance of our lives. I said at the beginning of our study in 1 Peter that you could call us winsome wanderers. Well, you could also call us winsome warriors. And that really is a simple way to sum up this verse. Warriors, verse 11, winsome witnesses, right, in in verse 12. After I met my neighbor that day and hearing her tragic story, I wanted to meet her new husband. But it was obvious he was purposely avoiding me. Trash day, you know how it goes, right? You're new to the neighborhood and you're bringing your trash can out to the street and you're intentionally kind of looking to see who else is out there with their bathrobe and slippers, right? It's a simple way to kind of make an initial, hey, how's it going? Hey, man, how are you? And that's just the start, right? That just breaks the ice. Well, I would do that. I'd put my trash can out, and I'd see him, and, and I'd be like, waiting to just kind of give him one of these. He would never, ever look at me. I mean, just head down, down, back into the garage. One day, I was studying in my closet at home, and the doorbell rang, and I went to the front door, and there was his wife, and he said, or she said, hey, my husband wants to talk to you. I'm like, cool. It's about time. And so she led me around the side of our house where her husband was standing there analyzing the property line between our house and this lot that he had just bought next to us. And he didn't say hi. He didn't introduce himself. He just said, hey, man, your fence is on my property. So you can either move it or you can pay me to move it. I'm like, well, nice to meet you too, man. I didn't say that. I was thinking that, right? Well, eventually he decided to put a fence around his lot, tied it into my fence, built a little gazebo that was, he'd sit in and he'd watch his dogs run and play. And One day, he invited me to come sit with him in his gazebo. I'll never forget it. And he confessed to me that when I first moved in, he didn't want anything to do with me because I was a pastor. Shared similar sentiments about pastors and churches as his wife. And I just said, hey, you know what? I don't blame you, man, because there's a lot of pastors who are hypocrites and they make Christ and the church look bad. And I think that caught him off guard. He wasn't expecting me to say that, but it That broke the ice. And from then on, we started to give each other a hard time about stuff. And 
like when I wore a Longhorn's hat to his house one day, knowing he was an Aggie. And I walked up and rang his doorbell. He opened the door. He says, really, you're going to wear that to my house? And I said, well, man, I, I don't own an Aggie hat. We had our conversation, and I went back home, and that very same day, the doorbell rang, and I went to answer it, and there was no one there, but I looked down, and there was a bag with five Aggie hats, <laughs> one for each member of our family, and a pink one for Hannah. They were super sweet, and long story short, we became dear friends with that couple. And they told us we could come over to their house, over, you know, swim in their pool, use their jet skis, they drill for us, and it was just, wow, I never expected it to go that way. And then in the providence of God, they moved. And I don't think we've been ever more bummed about neighbors moving than we were when that couple left. Since then, we've gone out to dinner with them where they live now and haven't done such a good job maintaining a relationship with them, but it just reminds me of what Horatio Bonar said in Words to Winners of Souls. He said, "Is living fellowship with a living Savior, which transforming us into his image, fits us for being able and successful ministers of the gospel. Our power in drawing men to Christ springs chiefly from the fullness of our personal joy in Christ and the nearness of our personal communion with Christ. The countenance that reflects most of Christ and shines most with his love and grace is most fitted to attract the gaze of a careless, giddy world and to win restless souls from the fascinations of creature love and creature beauty. Oh, how much depends on the holiness of our life the consistency of our character, the heaviness of our walk and conversation. Our position is such that we cannot remain neutral. Our life cannot be one of harmless obscurity. We must either repel or attract. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little passage that's just chock full of great truth for us. Would you grant us grace to put what we've heard and what we've learned into practice, that we would be able to live these truths out in our lives, ultimately for the glory of Christ and for the salvation of the lost, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.